And the longer I've practiced, the more I've sort of come to, I actually think the thing that we are purveyors of is wonder. And I think that that's really important, you know, especially for our patients who have been burned out by the traditional medical model, who don't feel they're being serviced by their doctors, who are tired of the way things operate, business operates, the mechanics of it all operates. I think one of the things that is very fundamental to Chinese medicine and what we do is we say, we're gonna do something that you don't even understand. There is a mystery, there is an artfulness, there is definitely, there is a wonder to what we do. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that connects the voices of our acupuncture and East Asian medicine community. I'm not sure how business got to be such a bad word, or that it is somehow such a suspect activity. Sure, there are plenty of reasons that, air quotes here, business can be used as a buzzword to conjure up all kinds of bad feelings, and it's easy to point fingers at those who have been bad actors. I don't need to list them out for you. You probably already have a few boogeymen pop to mind just when I say the B word. It's easy to paint doing business as inherently evil or the domain of those with loose ethics. But consider this, business can also be a force for good in the world. It's an economic engine that allows creative people to sustainably build something that gives value, solves problems, and allows for a community of mutual exchange and benefit. It's a process that allows you to bring your vision into the world in a way that helps others. Businesses, especially small businesses, like politicians love to talk about as being the backbone of America at election time, can be a tremendous force for good and change. If you stop and consider this for a moment, you can probably think of at least a half a dozen businesses that you love to patronize. Businesses that make your life better and that make your community better as well. Running a business is not for the faint of heart. In fact, it requires heart, fortitude, courage, and a willingness to let the world show you where you were wrong and the challenge of discovering that you were right without letting it inflate your ego. There's a storyline in our profession about, I'm a practitioner. I'm not a businesswoman or businessman. I have an opinion here. I think that's a cop-out. I think that we're better practitioners when we learn to face the issues of power, authority, authenticity, and financial responsibility that running a business will force us to confront. And I don't see running a business as being separate from the practice of medicine. Both are about cultivation. Both are about bumping up against our edges and using it as grist for growth. Both are about an ongoing process of development. Both afford plenty of opportunity to get it wrong on the way to getting it right. It's not that we have to do business. It's that we have the privilege of getting to have a business. We have the opportunity to create something that reflects our values and creativity, which sounds nice on the surface, but it also means that we get to have a clear-eyed look at our deficiencies and those underdeveloped aspects of ourselves, especially when it comes to relating with others. Again, any issues we have with power or authority will arise in the course of building our businesses. These issues are unavoidable, and that actually is the good news, because these kinds of issues also arise in the work we do with our patients. And if we can whittle away some of that learning on our business 
instead of on our patients, then everyone's further ahead. In today's conversation, I'll be talking with two practitioners who did not set out to build a business. It wasn't on their radar at the beginning. But they both have morphed their practices and businesses through more than one iteration into something beautiful and unique. Finding business and financial success is never a straight line. It's a winding path of discovery, of recognizing we're wrong again, and of staying connected to a dogged persistence that in time allows us to create a business and a practice that authentically reflects who we are. I've got a few announcements and a couple of housekeeping details, and then we'll get right into today's conversation. And even if you don't think you'll ever open up your own clinic, I think today's conversation will be worth a listen. If you haven't listened to the conversations with Dr. Yu last week from Shenlong Society Conference, I recommend you queue it up soon. He's got some things to say about qi transformation that really caught my attention. So much so that between his thoughts and what I've been learning on my own from using the SOM acupuncture system, it's got me putting some things together in a way that I'd not previously seen. I'm going to be sharing those insights with you in the near future. Keep an eye out for that. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at lasers with Lauren Brown. In his typical fashion, Lauren goes deep into the subject that he's investigating, and he's got a lot to say about healing with light. If lasers is something you don't understand, you want to be sure to tune into this conversation next Tuesday. And if you've been working with the Sa'am method and have run into clinical issues, or you've considered using this method, but you're still unsure on where to begin, then join us on March 30th for a webinar that is basically a case consultation with Toby Daly on clinical problem solving with the Sa'am method. You can join us for this conversation, or if you can't make it, send me some of your questions, and you'll be able to listen to the webinar at your leisure as it will be recorded and available anytime that you'd like to tune it in. You'll find the registration information over at Geological's Crowdcast page at crowdcast.io slash geological. Or just go to the Geological website. There'll be a link over there. And if you're looking to gain the confidence to get up and running with the SOM acupuncture, then do consider joining us in Tucson in May or in St. Louis in later June. Details are, as ever, on the website. Also, Keep in mind, I'm going to have one of you on for the anniversary show later in the summer. If you'd like to be on the podcast, send me a postcard with your email address, and I'll be putting those into a hat and pulling one out. If you've already sent me a postcard, well, thank you. You know I love them. In that case, just send me your email and let me know that you want to be in the drawing. This is going to be fun. You know, without Golden Needle there just might not be a geological podcast. They were the first company to sign on way back when this was just a pilot project. We all like doing business with people that we know, like, and trust. People who are in business because there is a change in the world that they want to see, and they want to be a part of it. The folks at Golden Needle are dedicated to serving practitioners who treat their patients with natural methods. And they know that medicine is a lifelong learning endeavor and therefore support the conversations here which serve the acupuncture and East Asian medicine community by providing a forum for the free exchange of ideas, theory, and practice. Golden Needle supports your practice with a wide selection of needles, 
clinical supplies and herbs all at fair prices, and they're dedicated to outstanding customer service. Golden Needle, supplies for your clinic, nourishment for your mind. All right, folks, hold on to your hats. We're about to get down to business with our guests, Russell Brown and Renee Clorman. I hope that you guys enjoy this conversation. Today is a uh, group discussion. I've got Renee Corman and Russell Brown with me. These are two acupuncturists that I've uh, had some contact with in the recent past. We are here today to talk about not the hassles of doing business, although we may talk about some of the hassles, but more to discuss the privilege of being able to do business, the privilege of being able to build the kind of life that you want to build. So I'm delighted to have you guys here. Why don't you each give a quick introduction to yourselves? Uh, Russell, let's begin with you. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Michael. My name is Russell Brown. I own Poke Acupuncture in Los Angeles, California. I uh, grew up here in LA. I was a film executive before I was an acupuncturist, and then the pendulum swung the other way, and I uh, ended up going to acupuncture school. I graduated from Emperors in Los Angeles in 2007, and I opened Poke in 2008, 2009. That's it. Great. Renee, what about you? I am practicing in Nevada City. I graduated from Oakland in the East Bay. I've been practicing since 2012. And I'm initially from New York, and that's where I started school. And then I moved west and have been here for 10 years. And I, I owned a community acupuncture clinic for the first couple of years of practice. And then I moved to private practice after that. Looking forward to uh, hearing about that transition. I'd like to start with the question of, did you guys have any business background in growing up? Is this something that, that you were exposed to in your family, or did you have previous incarnations of your jobs that had you in touch with business? So what's in your background that might color the way that you see business these days? My parents were educators. My dad was a high school guidance counselor and teacher. My mother was also a teacher, and then she ended up working for the IRS. We were not business people. There was never really the sense of like, you should own a business. That was not a goal of my family. I never, ever envisioned myself being a business owner, a small business owner. That was not a fantasy of mine. It still is not a fantasy of mine. I sort of found it all to be quite surprising, you know, and, and I think it's sort of the typical line, which is that no one goes to acupuncture school because they think they're going to want to be an amazing business runner. Uh, and then suddenly you find yourself having to run a business. And But yeah, we were not business-oriented people. My mom was a, she was an office planner. She was an architect, essentially, for the IRS, which is um, the closest any of us sort of came to like being a financial institution, I suppose. And it probably informed my relationship with money. I don't have a great relationship with money, frankly. And all of my family still to this day wishes I had a job that was just like a real salary job. They're, they very much value that. I think there's a little bit of that sort of uh, depression era passed down from generations of like, 
wouldn't it be easier if you just had a regular job? Like, wouldn't that just be a lot easier for you? Like, I, they just think that that would be great. And even, you know, like I make, I make perfectly good money, but I think still in the back of their mind, a benefits package would be a lovely thing for their, their youngest son. Um, and that's just not what ended up happening, but a lot of things about me ended up happening. So what can you do? Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I have looked at your website. You say that having a business was never a fantasy of yours. I looked at your website. I looked at the kind of clinic you have, the, the feeling of it, the sense of it. It's a fantasy place, man. It's, I mean, you've really built something that is unique. I appreciate that. That was sort of the idea. And I definitely think we can talk about it some more, but I definitely, you know, as the, the more I practiced, the more I was like, oh, right. Like that is, that's my job here. My job here is to create um, a place that doesn't exist outside for my patients. and a place for patients to disconnect from their real lives. And that's why, that's why I do what I do. Like, and so the business kind of just became a, a product of that. The, the studio itself became a product of that. That sounds like an amazing touchstone to go to day after day. We'll, we'll get more into that in a moment. Renee, what, what about you? What was your background with business? If you had any? I did not have any. I was in academics and completely the opposite. My mom she's a retired nurse and business was not part of my upbringing. I did not learn how to handle money. I did, I was not taught financial savvy, but I did have an entrepreneurial spirit and would always get into little projects. And with Chinese medicine, the interest for me has come from creating a seamless experience and trying to make similar to Russell, just trying to create a healthcare experience that is not something people get elsewhere. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, for me, and I, and I didn't realize this until five, nine, 10 years ago, I grew up in a family of small business people. So I had grandparents that ran furniture stores. My dad was in sales. So while he, you know, ostensibly had a, a job, you know, when you're in sales, you're, you're basically self-employed. My mom ran her own business and I can remember like family holidays. We, you know, sit around the table talking and, you know, there'd be mention of like some cousin who got the big job somewhere, you know, the big fancy job, but all around me were people that didn't have jobs. They had businesses. And, and I think that wore off in kind of a, a funny way on me, but it, it really, it took me a long time to realize that I had this in my background because I too carried the story of, oh, I'm no good with money. Well, guess what? Being no good with money, going into business is going to teach you a lot about it. It's actually very helpful. But I thought I should have a J-O-B. It turns out that while I've had some in my life, I'm not the best employee. I'm actually not that good at having a job. Um, so for me, going to acupuncture school I, Russell, I was one of those people that looked at it and went, hmm, opportunity to do my own thing. I like that. That, that was a draw for me. I saw it at the very beginning, and it was actually an attraction. It wasn't a, uh, a downside sort of thing. It's so interesting that you sort of set up this dichotomy between having a business and having a job. Because even in my day-to-day -day life, obviously, I have a business. I have a business that I love, and I'm so happy to be an acupuncturist. But I still think it's a job. Like, I feel like, oh, my God, like, I have such a job. And I have a job that never ends. And I have a job that requires me to go in all the time. But I definitely 
can't I, I this is the first time I ever even considered the fact that like having a business would be the opposite of having a job like I work for a boss who is unrelenting and that is myself he very rarely gives me lunch breaks he doesn't really validate my vacation needs he is a he can be a very cruel boss but I definitely still feel like I work for the business I have a job for my business and my job is um is great but it's definitely still a job for me yeah. See, when I think of a job, I think of something that at the end of the day, I go home, I'm done. I don't have to think about any of it. <laughs> but having a business, I mean, we all know this. At the end of the day, you got your taxes, you got your you know, bank accounts, you got your office to clean up, you got, I mean, you know, the list is endless. Yeah. You both spoke about creating a kind of space that doesn't exist for your patients to come in and have an experience. I'd like to know more about that. Renee, how about we start with you? When I started the community acupuncture clinic, I, I looked at 20 spaces and the space that I chose was an old dive bar and it had been remodeled to look like an art gallery. And it just had a lot of personality and it, it really was like walking into another world and it, it was beautiful and huge and, I, I loved going to work every single day. And so the atmosphere was beautiful. And I had my invisible receptionist. So I worked out all the systems that people could schedule online. When they got there, they would pay at a separate station. You know, everything was done. So then I could just work the entire time. And I, I was the only person doing all the work, but it creating all these little things that made the experience seamless, allowed someone to just come right in sit down, get treated. When I moved to private practice, my space is not as beautiful, but I maintained many of those systems to help patients not have to think about the process. And another one for me is I, I really like to run on time. And I find that that's part of adding value to the work that I do. And I know that I have people in my practice who come see me and they are very busy or they have children or they're on schedules and I very much want to value their time. And I think because of that, they value mine. And that's part of that seamless, you know, interaction. So you created a virtual receptionist. You created systems. You let the technology take care of all that stuff. Yeah. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? I mean, just just like the broad brushstrokes for folks that might be going, oh my God, I'd love that. What are, what are some of the pointers that you would encourage people to pay attention to with that? If you use an online scheduler, which at this point feels that most people should because of the way um, we interact with you know, our phones all the time and computers, but use all the bells and whistles. Really look at what your scheduler has to offer and you know, someone would schedule and then they would get a confirmation and they would get a reminder or a reminder text if they choose that. And then I would also send a follow-up. And for the one system I had, you could pay before you visit, but I don't, I don't do that anymore. Another one is having a lot of signage. So the moment they arrive, they know exactly where to go. They know where to put their coat, their shoes. There's scripts because we all get asked questions a million times and it's great for those types of scenarios to have something written out where people already have all the answers they need before they come in for treatment. I have an aftercare sheet for the very first appointment. Basically, those are the broad strokes along those lines. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. 
Russell, what about you? I feel very connected to my my clientele and who my patients are. And so I really was thinking about like, what is the experience that I want my patients to have? What is the experience that a person from Los Angeles, like a regular person in LA would go to get acupuncture for? And for me, there's two types of patients. There are those patients for whom Western medicine has failed. The pain doesn't getting better. The pain is getting worse. The digestive stuff isn't making sense. The tests fail. They don't really know. And then there's the other patient who is the patient who is suffering from like the modern existential crisis, the like, I'm stressed, but I can't get out of the stress cycle. My job is painful, but the job puts food on the table. How do I manage my life? What can I include into my life to make my life work so that thus I don't have to abandon my life? And those are sort of the people that I really am speaking to, I think, mostly because that ends up becoming the bread and butter of a practice like mine. Most of my patients are coming in every two weeks, every week, and have for years, most of my patients I've had for 10 years, and that they have managed to sort of make the acupuncture part of their existence. And, you know, like, without getting too philosophical, like, I think that a lot of the wellness model, the idea of wellness that we currently have in the modern world is, are you well enough to go back to work to the job that probably made you sick to begin with, right? Like, that's really what we talk about when we talk about wellness, like, are you okay, so that you can go back to working too hard, too many hours, for a conglomeration or for someone to make more money off of your blood, sweat, tears, and time. And so if that's going to be the system that we're, that we're operating from, especially here in Los Angeles, then there has to be ways built into that to take care of ourselves. And so I really have sort of think of what I do as being a support for those types of people. And as a result of that, I really wanted to create a space where a patient could come in and forget their life for an hour. And that was always the idea of poke is that I wanted it to say, could I distract you away from how much you hate your children or your spouse or whatever your job? Can I, could you see something else? Could you forget the narrative of your life for 45 minutes so that your nervous system can calm down? You can come out of fight or flight. You don't have to be in a car. You can feel just, you know, pinned down. And I really take that metaphor quite seriously and be in your body again. And so I've really built the space and my clinic and really the experience of what I do around that philosophy. My old clinic, I had, uh, when I opened Poke, I really was trying to distract people with stuff to look at. And I had art and it was very full of things. And I sort of was doing um, a real eclectic mix and And then I moved offices last year because I really felt like we have enough things to look at. And I really just feel that the internet and the culture has sort of decided that we should be distracted and we should be looking at things all the time. And my new space, which I think is probably the only one you've seen, Michael, is really just I wanted to give people some breathing room. I wanted really high ceilings. I wanted a lot of air to breathe. And that's really what I'm trying to do for the most part is I'm just trying to create a space where a person doesn't have to feel inundated by life, by Instagram, by by the world, by um, more information, and to really take a break from that and to just be in a space where they're not trying to digest for you know an hour once every two weeks. And so 
that was kind of a lot of the guiding principle around the, the space that I've created and the, the business that I'm working on. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting, Russell, that you've gone from this idea of we're going to distract you away from all the difficulties in your life and in creating this newer space, you've actually gone the complete opposite way. Very minimalist. It's spacious. I look at the pictures of your office and I just go, oh. That was intentional. You know, like my old space, I mean, I can send you some photos. It was beautiful, but like I almost felt irresponsible because, uh, you know, when I created it, it was 10 years ago and it was before a lot of the world became a little bit um, full, I would say, and uh, full of stuff. And even I was going to work and I'd be like, I don't want to look at anything else. I feel, I feel like I'm digesting so much on a daily basis. I'm being asked to digest so much on just a moment to moment basis. And I really felt like I feel a little sick of it. I can't, I can't take in any more information is how I feel. And I felt it was a little irresponsible for me to even ask my patients to after a while to be like, you don't have to look at the things that I think are funny. You don't have to look at the art that I think is clever or beautiful. I want you to have an opportunity to just not be processing. And that's really was a lot of what I thought about when I was building this new space, which I built for myself last year. Like, how do you not digest? What does that feel like to just actually have all the information you need for an hour and be okay with that? You don't have your phone. You don't have a magazine. You don't have a book. You don't have, you're not going to take in anything new and you're not going to give away anything either. You know, you're not giving energy to your family. You're not that entire exchange. I really wanted to break down of there is nothing to lose. You owe nothing and you're going to get nothing back. And that's really one of the things that I try to get my patients to understand because we don't have an opportunity to do that. If you have children, you don't have an opportunity to do that. If you have, if you have a dog, you don't have an opportunity to just hold and to be held. Yes. So you've created a sense of sanctuary. That was the idea. I know that we're all practicing in different parts of the country. And when I was a New Yorker, <laughs> the experience that you're creating, Russell, very much reflects your environment. And when I moved away from the city, being overstimulated is just not part of rural country life. So it's fascinating thinking about this as a, you know, a podcast for people developing their practice and developing ways to be part of the community that, yeah, in an overstimulated environment, you know, what can you do? How can you integrate Chinese medicine into their lives in a way that will feel healing? Here, I can just ask people to drive down the road and go stare at the river for an hour after a treatment or walk across the street. There's a trail that walks right in the town or take a quiet a moment and go sit somewhere in the woods. And it's just a very different, I don't have the same in terms of the way people are stimulated. It's, it's very different. That sounds amazing. I could almost fetishize just everything you just said about <laughs> going down. To the, to the like, you know, and that's one of the things I'm very clear. My, my practice is on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Oh, wow. Like, I'm in it. Like I'm in it. And so I really have to think about that. And so the, uh, and it was sort of like, I can, could you build a sanctuary on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood? And, and I think probably coming from the film industry where I was, you know, I, I was a development executive for the Fast and Furious movies. Like I get a very specific world that is part of being a Los Angeles person. And I, I understand who those people are. And, you know, half of my patients are Netflix employees. And I feel very close to that person and how that person has to operate in the world. And even just like 
to, to be in your car in Los Angeles, you have to be armored in a very specific way. The streets are tight. You're just trying to not hit each other, you know, like how do you park? Parking is very hard in Los Angeles. <laughs> All of it is just such an, an, an assault on the senses that you're like, how do you make a cushion? How do you cushion yourself from, from that assault? And so that question is very much a part of what I do. And, it, and it's very Los Angeles specific. And I sort of invite every practitioner to think about like where you are, who is your person, where you are, and how do you speak to what the needs of that person is. This is such a lovely demonstration of both of your creativity in that you've already had a couple of different businesses. They've been different kinds of businesses. And as you've grown in your work as an acupuncturist and as you get a sense of what a business is and, and what you want to make it, you've actually created really different spaces as you've developed your skills and developed your perception of how you fit in your community. And how do you make Chinese medicine relatable? What do we do as business owners to tell a story about how we entered, you know, something that feels very foreign to most people? And how do you bring it into their world? That's the secondary challenge, right, then, is that, oh, right, we also have this, like, medicine that does not speak the same language as probably most of our patients. It doesn't come from the same place. It precedes the age of reason, and that is very hard for a lot of people to get behind. And I think that that is then the other thing is, like, how do you bridge that gap? It's part of, for me, as a business person, the joy of creating something that works for me and works for my patients. An opportunity to look and see where can I help and how can I help in a way that's different than the usual medical model. Because we get to bring in not just the treatment we do, but the environment that we create is not disconnected from the treatment that we do. Yeah, and everyone's constellation of challenges or inhibitions and fears and their practice is going to be different. It's easy to want to emulate what you see a successful practice looking like, but the truth is that how you create a practice is going to be really unique and individual. And it's, it's, I think it's difficult to follow through on that when there are so many fears in our profession about running a business. Absolutely. In fact, one of the things that's been running through my mind lately is being very attentive to the difference between a busy practice and a successful practice. Very much. You know, keep it simple. Don't add too much. Really, you know, just be good at what you do. And the more you add, the more time you have to spend feeding and watering those things that you add. So, Renee, what took you from doing the community work to a more private practice? <laughs> well, that's a fun can of worms to get into. I... Living in the East Bay, I was part of the community of community acupuncturists who were really excited to bring an accessible option, uh, clinical option. And I attended the very first CAN workshop that was brought to Berkeley. And from there, I was very involved as a student and just loved, I love the community acupuncture model and I loved the people and I really enjoyed having that be a drive while I was in school. And so it seemed natural to go right into community acupuncture. And I, I applied for a POCA loan and I received a microloan of $7,500 to open my clinic. And I was one of the first three people to get a loan to do that. 
to have that loan, I had to follow very strict guidelines and I had to be listed on the website and only do acupuncture. And I was allowed to do herbs, but it was really challenging. And I love, I love herbs. The transition was I was treating 50 people a week and really to make it sustainable, you have to treat a hundred people a week, but I wanted to be able to prescribe herbs. And in order to do that, I could only see 50 people a week, which is about four people an hour. And six people is really the ideal. I was working very hard. My practice took off. It's easy to market a community acupuncture practice. And that wasn't the part that was hard. The part that was hard was holding this space and working 80 hour weeks. And I just got burnt out. I I tried too many different things. I mean, I'm taking, I take my own advice now about keep it simple. You know, I had a big space so I could offer Qigong classes. I offered free lectures. I had a person come in and teach yoga. I would make external medicines. You know, I I was just running really hard. One woman. This is a one woman show. Well, I brought other people in to do the free lectures and the Qigong and the yoga, but I was managing all of that. And it was, yeah, it was a one woman show. It was just too much on top of being a clinician and and being at the beginning of my career. And I was also in Sharon Weizenbaum's two-year graduate mentorship program at the time. So I was seeing this contrast of what I was doing. And I don't mean this to be a negative, but I was diluting Chinese medicine in order to create something accessible. And it it was upsetting to me. And it became something that I just could no longer do. And when I finished the graduate mentorship program, I just made a decision that I, I really wanted to be more involved with herbs. I wanted to be more involved with touching patients, with spending more time with them, because I think the things I'm most interested in are, are the full spectrum of Chinese medicine. And I just couldn't do that in community acupuncture. So I shut down my practice. I hiked the John Muir Trail as a cleanse. And then I came back and I opened up the tiny house of private practice. I have two small rooms compared to my very large 1,200 square foot office before that. And there was a huge learning curve and it was a complete, it's a completely different animal to run a private practice than a community acupuncture practice. So it, it took me a year and I lost probably 80, 80% of my practice and I had to rebuild. Um, Just because it was too expensive for them after you had reopened? That's a great question. I wrote a letter and I don't know that many people read the letter because I've run it. I live in a smaller town, so I've run into people since then and and they they were surprised that I wasn't doing community acupuncture bef- still. So it's hard to know. I think, yes, I think the price point, but I've kept my prices pretty low. I have, I worked on a sliding scale for a long time. I, I've adjusted things to try to bring in more of the people that used to come see me. And over time, I've just built a new practice. I mean, my, my skill set is very different now than it was. I created a residency for myself, a two-year residency. I think I had treated 5,000 people by the time I was done. So, you know, I got, a, I got a lot of hands-on work. I got really good at needling, very good at trusting my diagnosis, my instincts. And then from there, I was able to build on. So it had, it had tremendous value. And it breaks my heart that that was something that it, the choice I had to make. But it was definitely, for my health, it was the best decision. I think it sounds amazing. I'm so inspired by that, I have to say. And I think there's something really inspiring about like, I tried this thing, it didn't work. It really like, it it was hugely successful. The patient load wasn't the problem. The problem was 
I didn't like it and I didn't want to do it anymore. I think that like that is like that. I think that is such a beautiful story, especially for other acupuncturists to hear, because I think so much of what we're hearing about is there aren't enough patients. People can't make it work. The money's not good. And it's like, no, actually, the patients are out there. Like, I don't really believe that the patients aren't out there. I think they're out there. I think people want to know. I think people are curious. I think there's a reason why the medicine has lasted as long as it did. And for you, your problem was not getting people in there. Your problem was is that it didn't line up with the core values that you wanted to do when you were doing the medicine to begin with. And I don't think people really talk about that as like, am I getting what I need to get out of this career? Am I getting, is it satisfying the thing inside me that speaks to why I started to do this work? I'm amazed it only took you two years to recognize that it wasn't working for you. I would have sat there probably for another six years and been like, no, the people are showing up. I have, I have a client load. I have to stay. I have to stay and let that guilt kind of run me to the ground. It's sort of, I find it to be really inspiring that you were like, nope, I'm, I'm good here. I'm going to take some time off and then I'm going to figure out exactly how I do want to work. I think that's so clever. I mean, it's a whole different way of thinking about success. You know, usually we think uh, success, it's a steady state. I've gotten there. I got it. I just keep it going. But success could be exactly what Renee experienced. I did this thing. I pulled it off. It worked. It no longer works. I'm a different person now. And now it's time to pivot into something different. And I was at a crossroads. I, I had one choice, which was I really could have become a big clinic. I could have hired people, but it, it, I struggled with not being able to pay them a living wage. And that was very important to me. And in order to do that, I would have had to step up into more of a business owner role rather than a clinician. And I really wanted to just practice Chinese medicine. And most of success I've found has come in a series of tiny dares. I just dare myself to do something that's very, very uncomfortable. And when I do that, I just, you know, keep upping the game. I love that phrase, success in tiny dares. Oh my God, it sounds so accessible, right? <laughs> it's not like, oh, my whole life hinges on this. I'm going to do this little dare. Could you give us an example of a tiny dare? That sure. Was when I first moved to Nevada City, I knew absolutely no one. I think we knew our real estate agent. That was it. I was about to open this clinic and I had just taken out a huge loan and was completely broke and... I created flyers and I just walked, I was terrified of talking to people. I, you know, I, I'm an introvert and I, I just forced myself to walk into every single business in Nevada city and grass Valley and say, hi, here's a flyer. I'm having an, you know, a grand opening party, come and get some free acupuncture. I think I walked into over a hundred businesses. And Renee, that is a terrifying yeah. story. That is absolutely <laughs> terrifying. You're my personal hero today. Like that is crazy. And, and you know, cause you know, every acupuncturist is an introvert. We all think of ourselves that way. The idea that you're just like, let me talk to strangers about acupuncture with nothing but a flyer and like maybe a smile on my face is completely <laughs> like my, my fight or flight uh, nervous system just got activated. Yeah. And it's like the birthday party where you feel like no one's going to show up. Please talk to me about something you had no interest in two seconds ago. Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. There's another thing that I hear you guys talking about, and it has to do with money and the way we think about money and how so often we think that charging less is is an act of generosity. But increasingly, I'm thinking, Generosity has nothing to do with the prices that we charge. 
it has everything to do with the value that we provide. So uh, just a couple of examples. Renee, you were talking about how you like to run on time. It's really important to you. And respecting your patients and their time is really important. I would call that a deep act of generosity, very deep act of generosity. And Russell, with what you're doing in creating the kind of space on Sunset Boulevard for people that are part of the Fast and Furious crowd to come and unplug, huge act of generosity. You know, so often we think it's just about money. It's about, can I charge low enough to attract people? Or can I make it financially, I'm using the word accessible here in air quotes, because I think that people have all kinds of different ways of thinking about money and value that are probably super different from the way that we think about it. And it's very easy to get caught in our own echo chamber of what's really a value and totally miss what it might mean for our patients. One of the biggest errors that I repeat, unfortunately, is I do discount my practice at times. And I send out you know, a, a newsletter and say, hey, come in this month and get $10 off. And every time it falls flat, it never, that's, that's never a successful approach. And I, I have to constantly face that fear of what's going on. Is it, am I feeling abundant or am I feeling the scarcity? And obviously I think with the discounting, I feel the scarcity and you know, I'm, that's hard. Renee, when you say it falls flat, What's falling flat? No one ever takes advantage of it. I mean, I, I think I've done one of those specials, but it was when I introduced doing a new service. So I, I started doing craniosacral and acupuncture together. And that was probably in the five years of living in this area, the most successful offering where I discounted the price to get people to come in. But other than that, I maybe get one person out of a list of, you know, over 500 or so. What do you think attracts people to us if it's not price? I think about that a lot. And, and the longer I've practiced, the more I think. You know, when I first started, I was very clear. And like, I, I was like, you know, I, I'm an acupuncturist. I don't do crystals. I'm not, you know, like, I'm, I'm like a grounded acupuncturist. I'm like, not like one of these like hippies and, and billowy yoga pants. And I don't say namaste. And like, that was a very important philosophy for me to be like, I'm not, I'm not like your off putting, like, you know, hippie acupuncturist. I'm a regular person. And the longer I've practiced, the more I've sort of come to, I actually think the thing that we are purveyors of is wonder. And I think that that's really oh, important, oh, oh, oh. you know, especially for our patients who have been burned out by the traditional medical model, who don't feel they're being serviced by their doctors, who are tired of the way things operate, business operates, the mechanics of it all operates. I think one of the things that is very fundamental to Chinese medicine and what we do is we say, we're going to do something that you don't even understand and you're going to make peace with the mystery of not understanding it. And that is what I offer that no one else probably in your life can offer. There is a mystery. There is an artfulness. There is definitely, there is a wonder to what we do. And I definitely think that that is, that is something that I feel very close to is see how you feel Maybe don't even ask why. Maybe you don't need to know. Maybe you never knew how anything else made you feel. You never knew how pharmaceuticals worked. But for this one, you're going to trust that 
there is something just outside of your reach and that that mystery could be beautiful and it could be worth an hour of your time and a little bit of your money. The longer I've practiced, the more I really am trying to tap into that because I think especially with the world and fake news and information and trying to make things concrete and trying to pin things down, I think there is something really beautiful and freeing about saying, I'm going to let go of sort of the didactic nature of my existence for an hour. And I could just release a lot of that for a little bit. And that's one of the things I think that my, that I am offering that very few businesses can say they offer outside of Chinese medicine. I mean, that experience, Russell, is priceless. I also think tangential to that is, and it's like I said before, it's the stillness. Who is offering you stillness? Who is saying do nothing? Who is saying for a half an hour, you get to just be in your body. I'm going to pin you down. I'm going to say no distractions. No one needs anything from you. Explore your relationship to just being here right now. Like that's that's amazing. No one does that. You can't you can't put a price on that. In, at least in Los Angeles, I think. Like you really can't. You can't say you're not going to be you're not going to be asked anything of. You don't have to hustle. You don't have to be anyone for anyone else. And all you have to do is explore what it feels like to be in your body, torturous awful, wonderful, all of the things that come up while you're laying there and you can't move and you can't go anywhere. I think that that exploring that relationship is is one of the things that we do that is just absolutely necessary for so many people in 2019. This is such a beautiful counterpoint to the way acupuncture is often sold. Right. We're often we're trying to sell it as this evidence-based medicine, or we've got this research, or we promise that you're going to get X, Y, or Z. And you're offering the complete opposite of that. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in evidence-based acupuncture. Acupuncture is from before the age of reason. I don't think it helps me sell what I do to be like, here's the study I found based on the Western trial that probably is creating conditions that made you sick to begin with. I just am not interested. And you're also in the center of a universe where other people are creating the suspension of disbelief for everybody else. <laughs> so the fact... Yeah. Exactly. The fact that you can do that for your patients, you know, you you are aiming to offer that to the people that are creating that for everybody else is really pretty amazing. Wow. Well, you know, for a couple of people that weren't so keen on doing business, you guys sound like you thrive on this. I mean, there are parts of it that that get exhausting, but I I love both. I love using my right and left brain. I love thinking about how to help people understand the why and how of the, this mystery of Chinese medicine, that it is thousands of years old. And there's so much that you can grasp from creating the paradigm shift. And that's, that's the challenge, is helping people think ahead rather than just in the moment. You know, what are you doing to prepare for your summer health now? My teacher, when I was, uh, my primary teacher in acupuncture school was a very, very um, 
wise woman named Yvonne Farrell. And right before I was graduating, I was, I think we had breakfast one day and I was like, am I going to be an acupuncturist? Like, am I really going to do this profession? Like, is this really what's going to be the thing for me? And she sat there and she said, it may as well be acupuncture. Like you're going to do what you're going to do for your patients. And acupuncture is a great umbrella to do a lot of things. You know, you can be a, a, guide to your patients. You can be a counsel to your patient. You can just be a voice to your patient. You can be an educator as an acupuncturist. It's actually a very wide, wide range of things that we're allowed to do with our patients under this profession. So she was always like, for what you want to do, acupuncture is a great place to do it. It's a great structure. It's a great umbrella for a lot of work. And I, and I really, I really believe that. And I think as I, the longer I practice, it's been, you know, a dozen years now, it changes and the things I can do for my patients has changed. And I really appreciate that acupuncture as a model has supported a lot of the changes that I wanted to do. I do love that about the practice part. And that's the fun part about being in control of how you market being a business owner is that when I learn something and I go in deep and I want to bring that to my patients. Or even if I learn something on the surface and I find it interesting, I'm completely in control of how that shapes the way I practice and how I make money and how I market and how I talk to people. And yeah, it changes year to year. And not that there's a there's the anchor of practicing Chinese medicine, but you're right. You know, you're you are this field has so many different things that you could be an expert in. And it's okay to dabble and then to go deep and then to dabble again. I think that's healthy. Yeah. I've, I found that it really has been an opportunity to show me parts of myself that I wasn't aware of or interests that I have that were maybe laying latent, but through the practice and the way the practice shifts me and shapes me, there's all kinds of ways that I've had an opportunity to live my life that I would not otherwise have had. I do think that is what builds a successful practice. I mean, we can have the skill set, but if you don't know how to tell your own story about what brought you to Chinese medicine, what makes you passionate about what you practice, what motivates you to do your job well, you know, what teachers inspire you and why they inspire you, those are the reasons why people will come to see you. You know, the better you can articulate those pieces, the more people don't care about how much they pay you, then they won't, they won't think about that. They'll think about all the things that you're offering because you've been able to clearly articulate why you do what you do. And just piggybacking on that, which I think is totally true is, and, and I, I've said this before, and I don't know if I actually believe it, but I say it all the time, which is like, I have a real enthusiasm for being alive. And I want my patients to see that enthusiasm. I think sick people need to feel that electricity for um, being existing. And, and I want my patient when they come up from the needles to be like, I love that guy. Like, I think they have to love you a little bit. I think they have to think you're amazing and that they want to spend an hour with you every two weeks. They should be a little bit in love with you and not like in a sexual way, but just to be like, whatever that spirit is, I'm so glad it's in my life. You know, I think that it's not enough to just be a technician of needles and to do and to know the studies and to put the points in. I think there has to be a real um, 
enthusiasm for living and just a curiosity for life. I think that's one of our jobs. And I hope that my patients feel that from me and that they, when they leave the, the, my space, they're like, oh, wow, something excited me. I learned something new. I'm curious about something new. It's a great world. That love piece is interesting. Without sounding corny here, I find that when there is that sense of appreciation and exchange between my patient and myself, maybe they've lit something up in me. I love watching something light up in them that, you know, beyond the needles, whatever the needles are about, that there's something in an authentic human exchange where people have a moment where, where they can be seen and where they can see. A big piece of what keeps me doing the work, I find it incredibly nourishing. And it seems to be helpful to the people who come to see me because of just the things that you were talking about, Russell, that there is something that they get to tap into and touch that has to do with authentic connection. Michael, when you first mentioned doing this panel and the idea of the practice of practice, that that idea of being seen, being able to walk into the clinic space every single day and start with a fresh palette is for me the practice of practice, you know, that I want to be able to hear what somebody is saying to me without having all of my um, filters or the noise going on. And that in itself can be a treatment. I mean, I could do very little in a treatment and have somebody walk out feeling like something really profound happened. And I feel like, oh, I just stuck a few needles in and maybe, you know, palpated the leg or, you know, that it, it didn't feel that special to me, but whatever space I was able to create worked. Yes. I, I have found there are moments, sometimes the conversation with the patient, something will shift. The room will feel different. The needles after that are just to set what just shifted in their chi field. Yeah. My teacher used to always say that the, the work is done before the first needle goes in. And I don't know, I do that every week, but she really believes that the, the work is done before the first needle goes in. And the needle is there to sort of corroborate the work that was just done. That was, that's how I was taught. Wow. I had a patient the other day, it was, I don't know when this will air, but it was Valentine's Day last week, and someone sent me a Valentine's Day card, uh, and she said that, thank you for being the only man who listens to me, which she was oh. joking, but it was still really <laughs> funny to be like, oh yeah, that's, that's how I show up for people. I'm the only man who listens to her. <laughs> Again, there's, there's that expression of generosity, right? Beyond the prices that people pay. There's the value. There's that generosity of spirit right there. That's great. We've talked a lot about all the beauty that comes out of, of having the practice of a practice. I'm curious to know right now, what are some of the challenges that you're facing in your practice and, and in the work that you do? <laughs> uh, I think I'm in a bit of a growth stage, so I feel like an awkward teenager answering this question that I, every time I've made a big leap in the success part of the practice, I've had this really uncomfortable awkwardness and I, I'm in that right now. Um, I'm trying to figure out how I want to practice, you know, if I want to work with other people, what that would look like. Uh, you know, I've been working alone for a long time and I, I really love the collaboration. I, I think I want to work with other people and, geek out, you know, about the patient. And, and then the other piece is I'm integrating this uh, functional movement 
material into my practice. And it's, it's challenging to be able to do that and figure out how to balance communicating the Chinese medicine side and communicating the functional movement side and you know, making that sound like a cohesive treatment. And then how do I get someone to continue? You know, I, I'm very good at, I've gotten very good about compliance with herbs, about coming to acupuncture, about coming in for treatment. And now I'm asking somebody to do a lot of work outside of the treatment room than I did before. And I'm, I'm really in an awkward phase of how do I, how do I sound confident asking somebody to do a lot more work than they, they, I think they want to do. In some ways, it sounds like you're dealing with the problems of success. I guess so. But I find that every time I go through these stages, my practice slows down quite a bit. And I think my, my heart, you know, when I open up to the world again, it fills and I, I have to just trust that process. And so I'm, I'm in, I'm right in the middle of it right now. I'm in that bottleneck. Inhale and exhale, huh? Yeah. I wish I was consistent about that. <laughs> well, that would be called holding your breath. That's not going to happen. That's <laughs> not going to last long. <laughs> or more the med you know, the meditation that I know that it, it feels good and I'm just consistently inconsistent. <laughs> mm, there you go. Russell, what about you? What are your challenges right now? Uh, my challenges are, you know, I've experienced the same challenge for years, and it's the one I feel like we don't really talk about collectively as a group of acupuncturists or even anyone. But like, my number one challenge is, is that I, I have days where I don't have it in me. I don't want to talk to another person, you know, I'm an introvert. And I, I have days where I show up, and I'm like, it's, it's not there today. I actually can't, I don't have a lot of compassion today, I feel it dry out. And and but yet my schedule doesn't know that that's going to be the case today and how I then take care of myself on a day like that. And and I don't know if it's just like I'm too busy and it's all success, blah, blah, blah. But I do feel like what do we do about those days? How do I take care of myself on those days? Because otherwise I'm faking it, which doesn't feel very good to me. Or I leave and I'm completely depleted at the end of the day. But I haven't quite, after all these years, really figured out how to be a person who is ultimately likes to be alone and doesn't necessarily have the greatest social skills and also be someone who has to be with, you know, 14 strangers very intimately all day long or 10 strangers or however many patients I have for the day. I haven't necessarily ever been able to reconcile that. I so appreciate you articulating that. And, and I think you're right. I think we all experience it. There's just days the well's a little bit dry. You know, I mean, there's days people get some really great juicy stuff from us. And then there's the days where, sorry, not raining today. Yeah. And I personally, you know, I'll cop to it. Like, I'm not just not feeling it. Like, I'm cranky today. And what do I do about that? You know, like, I'm not a people person today. A lot of the times I am, but today I'm not a people person. And yet the books doesn't know that. And um, I find it to be very challenging. Like I just find it. And and I don't know if it's like I need to take more days off. I'm sure that there's really probably very functional ways for me to handle it. But it's the unpredictability of it and that's some of it. And part of it, like I'm almost like open to the fact that like, is this a hormonal thing? Do I have like maybe it's like a weird testosterone drop that happens every three months and I have two days where I'm like, I I can't, I just can't get it up today and I can't. I don't want to, I don't want to pretend and I, and I feel weird about calling my patients and just being like, I'm canceling today because I'm very, very cranky because my, my constitution is coming out 
I don't know. And I haven't, I haven't necessarily, I've never been able to reconcile it, but I'm having that like literally this week where I'm just like, I'm a little not in it and it doesn't feel good. And that's, that's part of wearing the many hats of being a business owner is you, you have to take care of yourself. And that's often the thing that gets tossed to the side. So by the time you reach your cranky state, it's too late. And and then you just have to power through it. And that's also challenging because then you're starting at a deficit when you you know, build back up. It's the roller coaster of being a business owner is definitely one of the things that we don't learn in school. And it's hard to ride those waves. And that does affect the, the clinic. And also, I think like, you know, if we worked for a company, we I would go to human resources and be like, I would talk to my HR rep and be like, I'm not feeling it today. I think my boss doesn't appreciate me. I feel taken advantage of. And I would like to take a personal day. I would like to take a sick day today. And we don't have those businesses. I don't get to talk to HR. I am HR. And my HR representative is unsympathetic to my plight, <laughs> or he's semi-sympathetic, but he's not going to do anything about it. And I don't know where to place that angst and I can't write a letter to anyone because I would only write a letter to myself and I don't want any more work. I don't want any more mail. (laughs) Uh, The joys are running a business. This is great. Correct. Well, hey, you guys, I can't believe an hour has gone by already. This is, this has been really a delight to chew the fat with both of you about uh, the practice of practice. Any uh, final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wind this thing down today? I think we do cool work. Like, I think it's a great job. And I, and I have to remember that a lot of the times too, you know, I talk about sort of being cranky and things, but like, I also think that I have a beautiful world that I've made for myself and, and we can make it anything that we want. And I don't think we're competing with each other. I think that we're all doing great work. And I like to think that like anything that's good for acupuncture is good for other acupuncturists and anyone who's putting out good work and making other people everywhere think that acupuncture is good, then that's great work. And I'm really, I like to, I like to meet other acupuncturists. I think that, I think everyone's doing their own thing and I think that's how it's supposed to be. And I, I, I think when I was younger, I used to be like, oh, she's that kind of acupuncturist and that that kind of business. And now I just think we're all great. If someone is just building their practice and they're listening to this or they're in a, par- a phase where they're you know, not as they're not able to pay their bills or they're trying to build a successful practice. You know, one thing that I've done is to challenge myself to do one uncomfortable thing each week and to just ask myself when I'm in a slower phase or in a growth phase, you know, am I doing everything I can to build my dream practice? And if I can't even answer what that dream practice looks like, then that's the place to start. Yep. That success in tiny dares. Yeah. Thank you, both of you, for this time today. I feel inspired. Actually, I usually feel inspired, but I feel even more inspired today to, uh, you know, see what the day brings. And I, I hope that you listeners out there have found this to be helpful as well. Wow. Those were a couple of brilliant practitioners and brilliant business people. I so enjoyed that conversation and I hope that you got something from it as well. Hey, if you like the podcast, if it's helpful, there's a couple of few ways that you can help out. Number one, tell your friends. Share it with those who you think it would benefit. You can also go over to the iTunes page for Geological and rate and review the show. If you're going to do that, leave a little comment about why you like it. It does help people to find the podcast. And finally, for 
a simple $5 a month, you can become a geologician that helps to keep the servers running, inspiration in the teacup, all the things that it takes to bring you the podcast every week. You can sign up. Where else? Over on the website. Folks, as ever, thank you for listening. I hope that you found this to be a useful way to spend an hour or so. And be sure to tune in next week. I'll have some more good stuff for you then.